Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. From Arcadian Court in downtown Toronto, welcome to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast or podcast, welcome to the meeting. Today's topic is no surprises, no secrets, a government's role in supporting a stable, prosperous, modern economy. Of course, we all woke up this week to a big surprise, the announcement of General Motors to close down the Oshawa plant at the, beginning of at the end of 2019. Obviously, manufacturing is a key role in a stable, stable prosperous economy, and so we are awaiting uh, your thoughts on that. This is the third time today's speaker has been a keynote at the Empire Club of Canada. However, it's the, the inaugural speech in her new role as leader of the, the, Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Thank you. So one of the challenges of introducing Andrea Horvath is Ontario's Artarians believe that they know her very well, and that was evident with the polling around the, the last election. I tried to find something that the, both the Ontarians and the Empire Club members might find unique about Andrea Horvath, and I found this online questionnaire from postcity.com that she was a part of, and she was asked questions like, what was your favorite TV show? And she said, Jeopardy, because she liked Alex Trebek. <laughs> Is that still true? That's good. Okay, well, if I speak too long, you can start to play the Jeopardy music, and that was, I'll just come off the stage. More interesting, she was questioned about her favorite historical figure, and Andrew responded, quote, I would say Agnes McPhail. She was one of the first female MPPs, and she fought battles that nobody else would fight for people that nobody else really cared about. And I see her as someone I very much admire, unquote. For those of you who don't know, McPhail was elected to the legislature in 1943. She was a trailblazer and had to endure many unpleasant things in those days, including heckling at events. There's a famous story of McPhail being confronted by a male heckler who shouted, quote, don't you often wish you were a man, unquote, and she answered back shouting, yes, don't you? <laughs> like McPhail, Andrea has a reputation as a fighter. She fought her way up in the male-dominated world of Hamilton City politics, first elected to council in 1997. She became an MPP in 2004 through a by-election, and shortly thereafter battled in a leadership campaign, becoming the NDP leader in 2009. This catapulted her into the first general election as leader in 2011. And when some individuals counted her out after the 2014 election, Andrea was not deterred. She kept fighting, and it led to incredible success. During the 2018 election, Andrea ensured that the NDP had the highest percentage of women candidates in Ontario's history at 56%. This resulted in women being elected as MPPs in 20 of the 40 total NDP seats. Under her leadership, the NDP vote percentage rose to 33.59% of Ontarians. So that, that is also great. In terms of today's topics, <laughs> yeah, you, you clap for all the other things. That's also good. You can clap for that one too. In terms of today's topic on the role of government, we do have some hints on Ms. Horvath's approach. In an interview she gave to rabble.ca after becoming the NDP leader in 2009, she said, Quote, government should not be hands-off. Government should absolutely be involved in the economy and the distribution of the wealth 
that the economy creates and the setting of priorities around things like education and healthcare, unquote. And we are all eager to hear what she, her take on that is today, particularly because there's a ch change of uh, government at Queen's Park. In her first speech to the Empire Club in 2013, Ms. Horvath was quoted as saying, quote, I know that a race to the bottom on wages is not the path to prosperity, unquote. This is evident of her position that all Ontarians deserve to, to earn a living wage and her belief that it is also good for the economy. Andrea has been an advocate for many other issues, including HST to be removed from hydro bills, forcing an end to proposed cost increase on seniors' prescription drugs, and the creation of the Financial Accountability Office for the province. In 2012, Andrea's work on these issues had led her to an EVE award in recognition of her public service. Please give a warm welcome to the leader of the NDP and Her Majesty's loyal opposition, MPP Andrea Horvath. Thanks, everyone. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Bonjour tout le monde. Bonjour. I want to begin by acknowledging, of course, that we're meeting today on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabeg, the Wendat, the Métis, and the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation. And as we meet here today, let us renew our commitment as Ontarians to true and meaningful reconciliation that's based on respect, cooperation, and action to make people's lives better and build stronger communities across our province. And I want to thank uh, Kent for that kind introduction. If I just want to take a moment and say it's probably the most um, broad introduction and fulsome one. And, and as you kept picking these things out from my past, I kept getting more and more uptight about what might be coming next. But you did a fantastic job, Kent, and I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I also want to thank the uh, Empire Club of, of Canada for having me once again, uh, and of course the sponsors of the event, uh, both the, uh, the luncheon as well as the VIP um, uh, event earlier before lunch, and you know for making this event possible, uh, for making it um, you know an opportunity for all of us to get together uh, to have a chat today. I, I really do appreciate it. It's been uh, my pleasure as both the NDP leader and now as leader op of the opposition. Uh, to meet and work with many of you who are in the room today. And as I look out, I see business owners, I see not-for-profit leaders, I see labor leaders, I see investors, and all of you are vital, uh, vital um, parts and partners in building prosperity for our province. I know that everybody in this room shares a commitment to protecting what's already working in our province, and to fix what isn't working. We also share an understanding of the serious challenges that uh, Ontario faces. And let's not sugarcoat it, folks. Uh, you know, we are certainly in some uncertain times these days. Uh, as I speak, there are close to 5,000 workers and their families in Oshawa worried about their futures, uh, as Kent has already 
mentioned. After a century of assembling GM vehicles in Oshawa, those folks are worried. Worried that they are not going to be able to keep putting food on the table for their families. And my heart is with the city of Oshawa and the, the region of Durham, and I'm sure all of you in the room feel the same way. But I believe that the province of Ontario must do much more than simply extend sympathy. The province can fight like hell to protect those jobs. And I think we need to do that. You know, electric and autonomous vehicles will be at the heart of the auto industry moving forward. So let's not just sit back and let other jurisdictions lead. Let's not just wave goodbye to thousands of jobs. Let's do the hard work and put Oshawa and Ontario back on the leading edge. For a century, Oshawa has been a leader in the auto industry, and I think we can keep it that way. So let's work hard now with the workers, with the municipal leaders, with local businesses and, and the community to ensure the vehicles of tomorrow will be built right here in Ontario. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that, obvious that I don't share Doug Ford's attitude that it's all over. He's throwing in the towel, but there's a year before the announced closure actually takes place, and I say it's only over if we give up. But you know, sadly, it's not just GM workers that are worried, and it's not just GM worried about uncertain times in our province. In the many years that I've been meeting folks uh, from different industries and sectors across the province, one thing that everyone regardless of their sector, has always expressed to me, has always emphasized, is the fundamental importance of predictability. Government plays a key role in providing a stable environment for business of all sizes, in all sectors, to thrive. Because an environment where businesses have to contend with shocks and surprises only makes it harder to build a prosperous and secure economy. Predictability, transparency, that's how we build stability for business, reliability for investors, and prosperity for everyone. You know, making sure that anything that's coming down the pike is based on data and evidence, making sure that there's a clear plan, making sure that the government shares that plan for all to see, so that everyone, workers, businesses, and investors know what to expect in the next quarter, the next year, the next five years. No surprises, no secrets. Since the election, there's been oh, just a little bit of change, I'd say. <laughs> there has been a lot of change since the election, and I know that some of you here are probably very appreciative of some of those changes. That's no secret. And it's also not a secret to you that uh, I opposed things like rolling back the minimum wage and I opposed taking the two sick days away from those who counted on them. Because, because I really do believe deeply in respecting working people. And I feel strongly that everyone who works in Ontario should be able to build a good life here. Now, you might not agree with me on the minimum wage issue, but you may recall that I've been calling for an increase in the minimum wage 
for years now. We were calling for $10 back in 2010. We were calling for $12 back in 2012. Tim Hudak's getting a bit nervous over there. Um, <laughs> you remember those days. <laughs> um, but I, mean, I think what we can all agree on, though, in this room and throughout the province is that for far too often, decisions in Ontario these days feel like they're ill thought out like they're being based on who has the Premier's ear at any given moment, instead of what's best for Ontario's people and Ontario's economy. Decisions like cancelling university campuses in Markham, Brampton and Milton, for example. Decisions like that that are not backed by data, that are not backed by evidence. It's short-term thinking. And when the plan is kept hidden from you, from me and from potential investors, it makes it harder for everyone to do business. It means businesses, investors, and workers are never sure about what's going to happen next. But one thing is very clear. Ripping up contracts in the green energy sector and passing laws that prevent those very businesses from suing for breach of contract, scuttling vital independent watchdogs like the Child and Youth Advocate, the Environmental Commissioner and the French Language Services Commissioner, watchdogs that people of Ontario depend on to hold government accountable. These are not things that inspire confidence. Now, hopefully, this will change. And as leader of the official opposition, I will be constructive. I'm going to support what's working in our province, but I will also be pressing our government every day to fix what isn't working. Because businesses, thank you. Because businesses should be able to trust that the contracts they sign are going to be upheld. They should be able to plan ahead with some certainty for the next year and into the future. And investors should be able to look at Ontario as a safe bet because these are exactly the kinds of things that make it possible for all of us to build a more prosperous Ontario together. Stability and predictability in government are also essential to growth because they allow us to look forward. They allow us to tackle the big things that we need to move our province forward, like infrastructure planning and investments, so that we can finally build more efficient, affordable transit, expand the benefits of broadband, Broadband, rather. Broadband. Huh, that was a good slip, eh? <laughs> Expand the benefits of broadband uh, internet to, to places like rural Ontario, to, to communities that don't have it now. And it's shocking how many communities don't have it now. Rural communities, farmers, businesses in school in small-town Ontario. And ensure that we have safe and accessible, well-maintained roads everywhere in our province. Roads that allow people to get back and forth to work, allow goods to get to market. We know we have to keep on building and improving our modern workforce as well, which is essential to a modern economy. And that means we have to invest in education at all levels. You know, from taking a... <laughs> from taking meaningful action to fund and fix our kids' schools, to making sure that the cost of college or university stops being a drag on the upward mobility of young people who are entering our workforce. 
young people who are hoping to buy their first homes and start their families and build a great life for themselves. You know, instead of cancelling the construction of those critical universities that I mentioned early on and smothering economic activity in fast-growing municipalities like Brampton, Markham and Milton, Ontario should be seizing opportunities to become more competitive in the global economy by expanding our capacity for research, innovation and excellence. And we also have to move forward and not backward in our vision to build an economy where everyone can get quality, steady work. You can get a quality, steady job. A job where everyone is paid fairly and can earn fair benefits so that they can build a good life for their families, contribute to our growing economy, and ensure that our province prospers. You know, moving forward on improving our modern workforce also means that governments needs to, government needs to ensure that all of us, as workers, businesses, investors, Ontarians, are supported by an accessible, high-quality health care system. <laughs> and I believe that that means safeguarding the quality of our public health care system as it is today. But it also means coming to the table and contributing to things like dental benefits for Ontarians. Because expanding quality health coverage will make Ontarian, Ontario an even more attractive place to invest and an even better place to run a business. And it will make people healthier. And I'm just going to go offline for a sec on, on the dental issue because I talked to so many people. Now I'm going to use one of Doug's lines. I talked to thousands of people during the campaign. <laughs> And I did. Um, and, and, you know, even, even um, business people uh, were, were quite interested in the dental benefit program that we were putting forward uh, because two-thirds of companies already provide dental benefits uh, for their workers. Uh, the plan that we had was one that would ask those one-third that are not doing that uh, to help uh, contribute. Uh, and, of course, the, the in tandem piece, if you will, was our, our pharmacare program. And what that would have done uh, is a couple of things. It would have taken about $800 million a year uh, out of the costs of benefits for those employers that are uh, pro providing benefit plans. So that would have been a, an assistance uh, to uh, employers in, in that regard. But what it also would have done was give, was give us uh, a significant bargaining power when you are representing 14,000, or 14 million rather, almost 14 million um, people and their, their needs for, uh, for drugs and for uh, pharmaceuticals. And so when you've when you're got that many people uh, for whom you're you know, bargaining uh, with drug companies in terms of the cost of drugs, it's a big bargaining chip. And so we saw that, and again, not, um, uh, not something that we cooked up in the back rooms, but we were consulting with the uh, with people that uh, from particularly from the uh, West Coast who spend their life doing uh, work on, on this particular issue to try to figure out how do we move our country forward when it comes to pharmacare. Uh, and those experts sh showed us very clearly you know, that we can not only save significant dollars in the cost of pharmaceuticals with the pharmacare program, uh, but we could also then reduce you know, the impact on our healthcare system in other ways, right? Fewer people ending up in emergency for, for conditions that, uh, that they weren't able to manage with drugs. One in every uh, three minutes in Ontario, there's somebody going to an emergency room or a doctor's office to get uh, 
their pain in their mouth dealt with, so the dental plan would have helped reduce pressure on doctors as well as hospitals uh, also. And so when we talk about things like pharmacare and, and dental care, it's not, it's not just the socialist dream, my friends. <laughs> it actually makes economic sense, uh, and it makes sense in, from, for government to be able to reduce costs. And it will help us protect our healthcare system for the next generations. But you know what? It also means that you know the, the things that government has to do are, are things that um, uh, that are sometimes not easy. It's hard work. We have to do the hard work of maintaining and improving and expanding services like transit as well. You know, these services sustain our workforce, and they are the lifeblood of our communities and making them more connected, more prosperous, and more desirable to live in. That's why investments in transit are important. And Ontario's ability to provide these services at a high level makes it the best choice for skilled workers as well. And, and you all know very well uh, that we have a lot of great uh, skilled workers in our, in our province. We have a lot of really well-educated people in our province, um, but their choices are global in terms of where they use their talents where they decide uh, to, uh, to settle in terms of their careers. And what we need to do is make sure we provide uh, the infrastructure, if you will, to encourage them to stay here and to use all of that great talent to help move our province forward. So I'm looking forward to hearing your insights about how we can give people and businesses the stability that they need to succeed, because I believe that together we can make Ontario a better, more affordable place to live and to do business. And we can attract the world's best, not only keep our best here, but attract the best from the rest of the world. And we can create more opportunity for every Ontarian. The people of Ontario have more in common than what divides us. We share a vision of vibrant communities, no matter where those communities are. Vibrant communities in urban settings, vibrant communities in small town settings and rural settings, world-class healthcare, more opportunity and less debt for our young people, and prosperity for all. And I know that we can deliver on a shared vision to make Ontario the best place in the world to build a great business and a great life. So thank you all very much. Merci beaucoup. I look forward to uh, hearing your questions. Miigwech. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take some questions from the floor. We have Bill and Marie with mics. I'm going to ask the first question while people are getting their thoughts together, but when it's time for you to do so, please introduce your, your name in, in the, com the company or, or organization you represent. And if it drags on a little bit too long, then Andrea may sing the Jeopardy song, and, or I might start singing it, you never know. But So uh, one of the questions I had was around General Motors and you had talked about an auto strategy in the past. What is the, are you still, is that something you're still emphasizing? And if so, in this new context, what does that look like and, and, and how might that be applied? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, Kent, for the, uh, for the question. And, and yes, I mean, we've, uh, we've talked about an auto strategy for some time, so not just during the campaign, but uh, as part of our platform, uh, but for a number of years now. Uh, 
I mean, people may know this about me. I'm, I'm an auto worker's daughter. I mean, I, I grew up in Stony Creek, which is now part of Hamilton, thanks to Mike Harris. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and my dad, I mean, my dad had a great job, right? We had, there were four kids in the family and uh, we were able to afford the things that we needed. We had a, a, a nice lifestyle and, uh, and although we didn't have the kind of money uh, that he could put all four kids through university, um, we still did very, very well. And um, my, my sister and brothers and I um, had a pretty good life. Uh, so when I, when I say that, it's because I know how important those kinds of jobs are. And now I also know that there's many changes that are happening uh, globally uh, that we have to be uh, cognizant of, but, but we also have to realize that uh, these jobs and this investment in terms of the, the new um, kinds of cars or automobiles that are coming online in the, in the future uh, aren't, aren't going to come here by accident. Right? We're not going to get you know, the uh, autonomous vehicle manufacturing or, or the uh, uh, electric uh, uh, automobile manufacturing opportunities here in Ontario um, as a fluke. So part of what we need to do is, is not only sit down with, uh, with, with industry and the other orders of government uh, and labor, frankly, uh, but also, you know, with uh, with universities and colleges and, and with the innovation sector. I mean, look, we, we have so much in terms of what we can offer. When you look particularly around uh, around the innovation corridor and, and, and the, the engineers that we have here and the, the, the people that uh, uh, that are, are doing such great work when it comes to innovation, uh, these are the these are the, the pieces that we need to have at the table to develop a strategy uh, to help us make sure that those, uh, those investments are coming here uh, and that those products are being manufactured in our, in our communities. Uh, because one of the th other things that we have, which is kind of the very big disappointment I think about Oshawa, uh, we have a really skilled workforce when it comes to automotive. Uh, and, and the disappointment in Oshawa was of course that that plant particularly had uh, done a whole reskilling of their workforce uh, to, uh, you know, to deal with their, their dual um, plant, which can produce both cars and trucks. Uh, and those folks worked really hard uh, to make sure that they were top-notch. And it's one of the, apparently, the highest quality um, uh, plants in the entire uh, GM family. And so to lose a plant like that, uh, it should never happen. But what we also have to make sure uh, is that we get GM and the other big three, if you want to call them that, as well as Toyota and others. I have a brother that works at Toyota, by the way, so I had to put that plug for Toyota in there. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but we can't just expect that we're going to continue to have those good auto jobs without a proactive strategy. And that proactive strategy has to have all the players at the table uh, so that we can, we can map out how it is that we're going to get these investments and these products here in our province. Thank you. I'm Michael Kobzar from Siemens Canada. You briefly made mention of the university cancellations that, uh, that just took place, uh, I think Brampton, I believe Milton, and where I live in Markham. And I'm not a student, so it doesn't affect me, but what effect will it have on, on uh, communities and, and the economies of those communities? If you could elaborate on that, that would be great. Sure. Thank, thank you for that question. And, uh, you know, I, I think we were all pretty shocked when we saw the, um, you know, 
middle of the night, kind of dead of the night announcement uh, that these universities were being canceled. And of course, since then, the Ryerson Law School uh, has been canceled, and uh, as well as the Francophone University. Um, but you know, I, I talked in my speech about uh, about the fact that we have. Um, you know, we have a, an economy that's changing, right? I mean, we have some of the most rapid and increasingly rapid change in technologies um, that we've seen in our history. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's I think, backwards to imagine that we're going to be able to take advantage of, of uh, being on the cutting edge of the changing uh, technologies and economy uh, if we get rid of our, our post-secondary institutions or if we don't expand opportunity for young people uh, to be able to engage at the post-secondary level. And so if, just for an example in Brampton, um, a young person who would have uh, would have uh, taken advantage of the Brampton campus um, would have saved about eight hundred dollars or more per semester, uh, as well as eight hundred hours of time in traveling back and forth uh, to university uh, to downtown Toronto. That's pretty major. When you when you look at the I think it was the Markham campus um, that that was literally about to turn sod. I mean, within a, within a, two weeks from the announcement coming was the sod turning that was supposed to happen. The, the hours that went in uh, to building the partnerships that uh, that led to the vision for that campus, uh, it, 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 you, you can't even count uh, how much effort uh, was put in. And, and that campus was one uh, that was bringing together um, business, uh, you know, bringing together, of course, the uh, academic side with the college and university involved, uh, bringing together community, uh, and, and it, it saw itself as a you know, as a, as a real hub for innovation and for scaling of, uh, of, of companies. So taking not only, uh, you know, the innovators, but translating that innovation into marketable products or, or ideas that then uh, could be scaled. And so all of these partnerships uh, were part of what this particular hub was all about. And now all of that activity is gone and all of that excitement about the future is gone. Uh, and it, it really has a dampening effect on, on, on the community. Uh, similarly, when you, you think about Milton, again, uh, there was a, a real opportunity there for the connection into the innovation corridor, uh, and they really saw this as, as their way of, of bringing you know, innovation and opportunity. Because the other thing that we see, and I, hear, I heard, used to hear this in Brampton, and I'm sure I'm gonna start hearing it again, um, the frustration when, when, when people uh, have, have to send their children far away or, you know, at least on a journey uh, to get to university uh, and sometimes those kids don't come back, right? And, and sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. And sometimes they stay in Toronto, for example, and don't come back to Brampton. And when you have an opportunity to make Brampton the centre, where you can start building innovation in Brampton and start building job opportunities that come from that innovation and, and uh, uh, that investment in Brampton, uh, then there's opportunity for those young people as well to stay in their own community and help that community thrive. And when you think particularly about, about these, uh, uh, these particular cancellations, I mean, these are fast-growing communities. I mean, Brampton, I think, is the second fastest-growing community in, in the entire country. Why wouldn't we provide the kind of infrastructure, education-wise, uh, that we need to make sure that the young people in Brampton, you know, have have opportunity for the future? And, and so, uh, so again, I mean, that, this is for me what why I really uh, feel strongly that those decisions were made on a whim and for the wrong reasons. Because we, and you, uh, folks here who are business people, you know this as well. I mean, you, you have to invest. 
You have to invest to continue to move your company forward. Uh, you bring, uh, you know, bring new products to market. You have to invest in R and D. Things don't just keep rolling along without any any thoughtful investment in the future and and that's what i think government needs to do as well particularly when it comes to the the changing economy that we have and the um you know the realities that we're facing in terms of global competitiveness I don't, oh, MJ Perry, uh, semi-retired, back at school, loving it. Um, and so um, my question is an academic one also. Um, I remember when so many of our schools were made public, that was when I first, I did my first degree. And I think Bill Davis was very instrumental in ensuring that um, education, post-secondary education would be available to all people. I am seeing our public schools becoming less and less accessible to my colleagues. And I cry for some of them as I see them struggle and know that they are going to be burdened with debt well into their 40s um, because of the cost of going into schools these days. And the support is coming from the private sector, which is good for STEM courses. But if you're in the fine arts, the liberal arts, the humanities, social sciences, because we don't have, you can tell where I am, um, we don't have those immediate results. It's usually 25 to 500 years before you see results of our work. Um, <laughs> they aren't as attractive for return on investment. So I am really, really concerned about our post-secondary students not, and our institutions not being as public, and then also the fact that there aren't more opportunities for these students when they graduate because there aren't other areas. Well, you know, you've raised a really important um, question and, and I just, you know, I've been touring around for a couple of years now on university campuses uh, and there's a couple of very worrisome trends that um, I'm hearing when I, when I engage young people in, in uh, a discussion about where they're at. And they're, they're reflecting exactly the kinds of things that you're saying. Um, I, I, I've met uh, young people who are telling me, you know, they're, maybe they're 24 years old, uh, 23. They have no interest whatsoever, whatsoever in even having a serious relationship with anyone because they don't think that they're going to get anywhere near being in a position to start their adult life uh, till well after the age of 30. Uh, they're putting off those kinds of, um, uh, you know, life-building milestones that we all expect at certain points in time uh, because the debt that they're carrying is, is significant and it's holding them down. And I, and I did speak about that in my remarks very briefly, uh, but those remarks, they don't come from, you know, from statistics. They come from really hearing what young people are saying and, and how worried they are uh, about the future uh, and, and how worried they are about being able uh, to, uh, to have the kind of future that they, uh, that they had hoped for and that they, that they wanted. And that burden of debt also creates a lot of stress and anxiety and that concern about being able to actually work in the field uh, that, you, um, that you were studying in is, is another big piece of the, um, of the puzzle. And so one of the things that we had on our platform uh, and one of the things we believe in firmly, and it actually comes from work that uh, has been done over the years uh, by uh, my MPP, 
possessive that I am, my MPP, from um, London West, Peggy Sattler, uh, who did a, a, a whole bunch of work on work integrated learning, about how do we take our post-secondary institutions and make sure that the young people are graduating with some um, experience under their belt where they've actually been in the workplace. They, uh, they've made some connections and some networks uh, in, the, in the, uh, the workplace. And work integrated learning, I mean, I know the federal government's been talking about it as well recently, but it's something that we believe we need to build into our education system. Uh, so co-op opportunities as well as work integrated learning. In fact, one of the universities that was canceled uh, sp spoke particularly about ensuring that every single graduate would have uh, a co-op placement. Because, uh, because the universities are realizing as well uh, that this is something that young people need. And of course, the other benefit of that is when, when young people then graduate, the employer gets, a, gets a, a, a new worker who's got some understanding of the workplace, right? Who's got some, uh, some skills and uh, how to translate their education uh, into the workplace. And so it's, it really is a win-win. Um, so there, there's that piece. And, and I just want to say in terms of the affordability, um, one of the challenges that I've seen for our province is that we are seeing the opposite in Ontario of what we're see, as, uh, as to what we're seeing around the country. In many other provinces, government has been stepping up their investments in post-secondary and, and, and relying less on uh, private investment. Uh, in our province, we've gone the opposite direction. But in other provinces, uh, government has recognized that we need uh, to invest in post-secondary uh, because that's, that's what's going to be able to make us competitive in the, in, in the future in the global economy as well. And so it's disappointing to see us go in the opposite direction uh, because I think that puts even more stress on, on our young people and, and more you know, challenge when it comes to the growing uh, fees and costs of, of tuition uh, and, uh, and other, in, uh, you know, ancillary fees that go along with education uh, at the post-secondary level. And, and, you know, one of the, I think, unintended consequences that we're seeing with all of these subtle changes, if you want to call them that, or changes that are just kind of piling up over time, is massive levels of anxiety with our young people. You know, I, I, when I meet with kids on campus, oftentimes it's the um, Students' Association that uh, is responsible for the management of the um, drug plans that, that students have. I don't know if any of you may have kids that have gone to school, but you know, they come back with forms and if uh, they, you can opt out of the insurance plan if your parents are already insured, uh, but if not, that's what covers uh, young people at, at university for prescription drugs. And I was shocked, and this started probably about five or six years ago already, uh, to hear from um, uh, the young people that are responsible for those drug plans through the students' associations, this spike in the amount of drugs that are being, um, uh, you know, uh, the prescriptions that are being submitted for uh, ref or like for um, for coverage, for uh, anxiety medication, for depression and anxiety medication. So we do have to solve these problems. I believe part of that is government stepping up. I mean, now in Ontario, we pay, we're not even, we don't even call it, um, we don't even call it public uh, education anymore at the post-secondary level. We call it, we don't call it publicly funded post-secondary education. Uh, we now call it what it is, which is uh, publicly supported uh, education because it's no longer 50%. 
No longer do we, we cover 50% of the cost um, of public education at the post-secondary level from the province, which again is the opposite trend of what's happening uh, around the country. Uh, and so these are some of the big, I mean, we, I talked earlier in the speech about some of the big things that we need to tackle. And yes, we need to tackle transit, absolutely. And yes, we need to tackle uh, healthcare. Uh, and when we need to you know, tackle you know, the, making sure that we have a workforce that's ready for the changes that are coming in the economy and, and in uh, technology. But we also have to take care of you know, making sure that we have the educational opportunities there and that they're accessible for folks. Uh, and we have to also, of course, deal with the, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the need uh, to make sure that folks have an opportunity to work uh, because those young people are bouncing now, right, between college and university. I don't know, I've been to the Y a couple times in Hamilton and those mums that are my age kind of commiserate about the fact that they paid for uh, four years of university, their, their child, their young person, uh, their son or daughter couldn't get a job in their field, uh, so they went to college to try to get some extra, you know, skills, uh, and then they're still working in the, uh, in the hospitality industry. Not that there's anything wrong with the hospitality industry, but that's certainly not why they went to college and then university. So that was a very long-winded response, but I'm glad you asked the question because it's extremely important and complex, so thank you. So the last question will we'll go to a former Queen's Park colleague uh, and for, for, uh, fellow Niagara boy, uh, also Kim Hudak. Well, I want to thank the Leader of the Opposition. It's an outstanding speech and uh, enjoyed your presentation today. I, can I ask a, like a behind-the-scenes personal question? Would sure. that be cool? Um, <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in this. Um, you, um, you have been uh, the second most successful NDP leader in the history of the province. You've won more seats than any other leader aside from the 1990 election. Congratulations yeah. on that. So you've got Percy Hatfield, Mike Mantha here, but you've got a whole bunch of new members. So you more than doubled your MPP. So somebody who had the job, maybe you could share with the audience what that is like to have so many new MPPs, a lot of whom are joining us here today. And my other question is, this is the biggest change in new members, I think, in the history of the Ontario legislature. So is the place different now with a lot more MPPs, or is the game the same old game? Well, I wouldn't say it's only the MPPs that are changing the game at Queen's Park. <laughs> Can I ask the MPPs uh, to, to rise and uh, say hello? So, so there are a couple of, uh, thank you, Tim, for the question. I appreciate it. So there are a couple of things. I mean, uh, first and foremost, uh, yes, there are m many, many MPPs on both sides of the house who have, uh, who are, you know, brand spanking new and who are, uh, who are there to, uh, to, to do their best and represent their constituents and to learn. And so if there's one thing I think that's, um, uh, that's very, very different is that sitting in the legislature, oftentimes there's, there might only be a, you know, less than a handful of people, depending on what part of the day we're in, uh, when we're debating bills, for example, uh, that there's, there's very few people that actually un understand inside and out how the place works. And you get to know that over the years, which I keep telling my folks, don't worry, you'll get to know it over the years, uh, but uh, with, with only, uh, you know, a handful of, uh, of people that, um, that have been there in the past at any given time uh, to kind of 
make sure that things are moving along and that uh, uh, we don't accidentally, you know, make a decision that we all regret. Uh, that's that's one of the things. Uh, the other thing, though, uh, and I think it's very positive, is that uh, with, with our caucus, and it was mentioned, and I appreciate that, that we have 50% uh, women in our caucus. Um, And, and we do have a, a, you know, we do have a very strong opposition bench, uh, and our and our caucus is not only uh, very, you know, diverse and has a lot of young people. And uh, one of the other benefits that uh, we're finding, and that th this isn't not this is not new for us as New Democrats, but uh, we have representation from all regions of of the province sitting around our caucus table. So so when it's important, it's really important. So when we're talking about issues that um, uh, that are really important for uh, for urban Ontario, for example, uh, but but don't quite fit with rural Ontario or vice versa, it forces us to have the discussion about you know what is the best public policy for, uh, going forward, uh, and how do we how do we you know prevent unintended consequences uh, from those kinds of decisions, and, and so it's important to have that that kind of diversity. But you know the other the other thing that the, that the having a stronger opposition bench in terms of the number of members uh, that we have helps us to do is 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 provide a better official opposition and i i'm not saying this in any way to uh, say that the previous official opposition wasn't good uh, but what i can do as leader then is take some of the intense files healthcare for example and instead of having a single critic for healthcare knowing how complex and how many pieces are, uh, are involved in the healthcare system, I can split that up into a couple of different critic areas. So I have France Jelina, who is our critic for health and always has been, and she's fantastic. Uh, health and long-term care was her previous title, but now she's a healthcare critic. And I have a separate critic for long-term care and home care, because we all know that that area needs a lot of attention. And then I have a separate critic for mental health and addictions, because again, that's a, that needs to have some focus. So one of the things that the larger uh, opposition helps me to do as a leader uh, is not only give people things to do, uh, but it helps us in our role as opposition. Uh, because what we what what our job is is to uh, hold the government to account. Uh, and as I said in my speech, it's not only about you know criticizing; it's also about bringing forward uh, ideas and, and and plans for the future that we think make sense for Ontario. Uh, and so it's 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 quite different um, having. You know, having so many new faces around the table, uh, not knowing, seeing, passing people in the hallway and not knowing if they're an MPP or not. That's happened to me a couple of times already. Uh, eventually, we'll get over that. But, um, but it, is, it is quite different. And of course, the, the style of, of the current Premier um, is another piece I think that we would all acknowledge is, is quite different than what we've seen uh, in terms of, uh, of the Premier's, uh, I don't want to say behavior, uh, way of operating, let's put it that way. Uh, but but I have to say I'm 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 excited. I'm excited about um, you know the, the the change that we've seen in terms of new MPPs being elected in in all kinds of different ridings. And I, I think it's obvious it was a change election. Um, and of course we want to change for the better. Let's hope we get it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Does anyone else think it's fantastic that you guys are former rivals and get along so well? I think it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Stony Creek is Niagara Region too, maybe. It is true. Stony <laughs> Creek, yes, yeah, exactly true. So, uh, 
to conclude the program, we're going to ask Ethel Taylor from CAA, the Vice President of CAA, to come up and give a thank you remarks. Just for the um, uh, for the Vice President of CAA, I'm Vice Chair of CAA, so I, I just don't want anyone to get nervous at the table that I've taken somebody's job. Good afternoon. It's my honor and pleasure to thank Andrea Horwith leader of Ontario's official opposition on, on behalf of everyone here today. Then I'll go off script. Uh, Elliot, Elliot's going to stop breathing right now. Um, but I do want to say I had such an enjoyable lunch with you. And um, it, 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 is so, it was such a pleasant um, opportunity for me, and I told you why. Um, but CAA has a, has a member value, um, is a member value organization, and we, we represent over two and a half million people across our province. One in four households are um, members of CAA. We recognize the value and importance and have done a tremendous job working with your staff, um, with other people in the legislature. It is a big part of our role to, to, for governance and our government and community relations. And we appreciate the support of your caucus and of your team. You touched on a handful of issues today and some really critical, all of them very critical to our members and to each of the people here, and we appreciate your view. Um, we know that solutions come from working together, and that's why we are so happy um, that we could sponsor today's event and know that we are uh, supporters across the house um, of, of good government legislation that makes, keeps our members safe. Um, I, I, your vision, I would say, um, is exactly what all of us want. We want a better Ontario. We want a better place for our children. And for us from CAA, we want a, we want a safer place for our members. I do want to congratulate you. And, and I would say not only the 50% women in your caucus, and, but on the diversity of your caucus and how it represents the province. So Andrea, thank you very much on behalf of everyone here and personally, what a delight to meet you. Thank, thank you. you. So thanks everyone for coming today. We have a few more events uh, until the end of the, the, end of the 2018. We've, we, by the end of 2018, we would have 16 events. So it's been a great season so far. We have a number of things coming up in the new year. Next week, we have the Federal Environment Minister uh, talking about with, with Tom Clark, former CTV journalist, on, uh, on our climate change issue. And presumably, he will, she will say different things than Rod Phillips said uh, a few weeks ago, slightly different. Uh, so it's a, it's a huge topic of interest, and it's very important to Canadians. And so uh, there's a few tickets left for anyone that's interested in coming, and that's a great event. The following week, our last event in 2018 is uh, Ralph Goodale. And uh, he will be uh, speaking uh, on very important topics as well. So thank you so much for coming, and the meeting is adjourned. Mm -hmm.